Some people think little girls should be seen and not heard. One, two, three, four! People do feel very radically different about gender experience. I mean, that's just like the rules of feminism. That diversity is like the number one thing I think that has to be reckoned with. Agenda with Tanya Ali and Katie Winton. Good morning, you are listening to Agenda on FBI Radio, your Saturday morning fix of art, politics and trash from a feminist perspective. I'm Tanya Ali. And I'm Katie Winton and Agenda on FBI Radio is broadcast on Gadigal land and I'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal people as the original custodians of the land that we broadcast on and pay my respects to their elders past and present. I also acknowledge the significance of Redfern as a place of strength, resistance, knowledge sharing and storytelling for many communities and would like to honour that history. Katie, today we're both a bit burnt out, <laughs> safe to say. <laughs> so burnt out. Uh, it is getting closer to the end of the year. And also, I don't know about you, but I'm still reeling from Daylight Savings last weekend. It's never, ever affected me so much. But this year, I just, I've just i been super out of whack, been late to work every day. Really? Like, yeah. It's, yeah. I feel super jet-lagged, even though it was just an hour. <laughs> um, but I feel like maybe it has something to do with this time of year where it kind of feels like everything's just catching up with you and it's hard to look after yourself while balancing everything. I feel like we do talk about self-care a lot um, but I also feel like it's just a continual learning process. I feel like daylight savings didn't affect me at all but maybe that's just because my sleeping patterns are so like wild anyway that I just <laughs> didn't even notice that there was an hour You're gone. very lucky. Yeah, um, I don't know. I feel like I'm very slowly learning how to identify what works for me and what doesn't in terms of how to care for myself. Um, and I also feel like it's such a delicate balance between being kind to myself and continually having to tell myself in the words of one of my favourite people, don't be sorry, be better. Um, and I feel like it's like, it's, I don't know, I feel like it's definitely complex and we can get into it a little bit later on For Thoughts That Count. Before we do that, though, we'll be hearing from our Auckland-based Agenda family member, Natasha Matilla-Smith, with her segment, Rough Idea, which explores arts practices and practitioners in New Zealand. This week, Natasha spoke to Cora Allen Wycliffe, uh, a multidisciplinary artist of Maori and Nui descent. Cora Allen is also a curator and a founding member of BC Collective, which stands for Before Cook and Before Columbus. She spoke to Natasha this week about her journey of becoming a maker of hiapo, a form of decorative bark cloth from the South Pacific island of Nui. Really excited to hear that conversation a little bit. Um, It was National Coming Out Day on Thursday, another news, uh, which was founded (laughs) in the United States in 1988 by Robert Eichberg and Jean O'Leary. Robert Eichberg was a psychologist from New Mexico and Jean O'Leary was a political leader and longtime activist from New York and was at the time the head of the National Gay Rights Advocates in Los Angeles. It's been all over our social media feeds and... Katie, I feel like we both have pretty complicated feelings about it. Yeah, I feel like I couldn't participate because I've never really had a coming out experience. And I I don't know, I feel like I can absolutely acknowledge the importance of coming out for a lot of people. And I, don't, I really don't want to speak about it in a dismissive way because I completely understand that it's a really big thing to find your community and also that the foundations of the day came from a very different time and that we wouldn't be where we are today with so many incredible um, LGBTQIA plus activists. Um, but I don't know, I just... 
like speaking from my own personal experience and perspective, I feel like the concept of coming out creates this really othering thing where like queer people have to announce their sexuality to the world and straight people don't. Well, that's it. I feel like the idea of coming out totally reinforces heterosexuality as default, the presumption that everyone's straight unless proven otherwise and you have to go to these lengths to prove it. I like similarly never had that coming out moment as such Um, and I feel like it kind of requires you to be confident in a label at that given time or even like the boundaries of your queerness I don't know it's it's full on and also the concept of coming out itself is super white Um, for many people of color coming out in some circles is just absolutely not an option so I guess to position it as a pretty defining characteristic of queerness which I feel like the social media kind of Mm. um, use of national coming out day uh i don't know it can be kind of isolating yeah yeah i think it's the same thing for a lot of a lot of these um days for things or you know like a lot of these social media kind of movements not movements but like social media awareness of things can be really isolating to be to feel like you can't participate in it or to feel like it's not for you or yeah like it's it's a really complicated thing and we probably need a whole episode to get into it um actually maybe it kind of feeds into our self-care visit yeah revisit i think it definitely does we will be talking more about self-care later uh for thoughts that count but first we're going to be hearing from natasha matilla smith and cora allen wickliffe for rough idea right after this track from cella featuring Benoffi. this one is called shut you up it has a language warning Tangled in the net Need 
Natasha Matilla-Smith, and this is Rough Idea, a series of discussions with New Zealand-based creatives which aims to give listeners a bit of insight into the contemporary New Zealand art scene. This week I talked to artist and curator Cora Allen Wycliffe. Cora Allen is with Māori and Nguyen Heritage, and this connection to her heritage is often explored in her works. She is currently the exhibitions manager for a community-based art gallery in West Auckland called Corbin Estate Arts Centre. She is also a member of the BC Collective, uh, which stands for Before Cook and Before Columbus. Uh, this collective consists of herself and her partner Daniel Twiss. In today's Rough Idea, we talk about her upcoming projects, more specifically how she came to create Hiapo, a form of decorated bark cloth from the South Pacific island of Nui. Um, my name is Cora Allen Wycliffe. I'm Māori Nguyen. My dad comes from the village of Ulufi in Leku, and my mum's in Ngāpui Tainui. Um, born and bred out west, and um, have really strong ties to both my cultures and enjoy spending time with my family. Can you tell us a little bit about your practice lately, what you've been doing art-wise? Um, at the moment, I am working towards a residency that I'll be attending in Canada at the Banff Arts Centre. There I'll be making um, large pieces of hiapo, so nguyen bark cloth, and I'll be doing that in relationship to creating new hiapo, as in um, working with the new narratives of the landscape that exists now, and so really kind of developing what Hiapo looks like with the landscape that Nui is now. And so there's, there used to be no ladders, and now there's um, stairs and ladders going down to the sea, and there, used, there never was a wharf. And so Hiapo, for me, reflects the landscape. And so it's really important now to kind of develop what it may look like in today's landscape. And then also just working towards doing some events for BC Collective, the collective I'm a part of. And we are fundraising money to start the very first Indigenous Art Award at AUT for the art and design graduates. It's Auckland University of Technology. Yeah. Coming back to the Hiapo, what do you mean by, like, the landscape will change what the outcome of your work looks like? Um, So the collections in the museums 
the hiapo there is very reflective of the pre-colonial landscape and so the flora and fauna that exist in those works um, some of them don't exist now um, and especially not in the is this the design? Um, yeah, the designs, um, because Nui and Hiapo is very floral and it's unique style of um, bark cloth from the Pacific. And so it has characteristics that other islands don't have because it's all hand-painted. Um, and looking at the collections and museums now, they definitely um, were able to really pull from the plants, the sea life, flora and fauna, everything around them because it was and bounty but now it's not so much and so the hiapo now that I'm creating definitely has a different feeling to the older more traditional yeah like it's the vine plants the creepers and a lot more of the older hiapo and when I went back to Nui earlier this year I saw a lot of those kinds of creepers but they don't exist so much on the floor of the bush or on the rocks by the sea but now they exist more in some of the old hurricane houses that have been abandoned and so these creepers are living in a different kind of landscape so they're growing within an old architectural space not just out in the wild yeah so the narrative that is in the design of Hiapo is very much reflective of the person making it their everyday life yeah, so it's reflective of the time, of the context that the person's living in. And it speaks a lot about what was going on at the time, so it's like a little time capsule. And the awesome thing about the museum collection is that you can kind of see a few pieces of hiapo that were done by the same person. And there's like a, a bit of a style going on here. For me, and the development of my practice, really looking at patterns and where they came from or where they possibly could have come from and the plant forms have been really important because we're not like other Pacific Islands we don't have specific patterns because each hiapo was designed by the maker so they interpreted plants differently so there wasn't this pattern is for the hibiscus flower or this person is for the tiali so it does differ but it's important for me to kind of not compare but watch how my images are developing in relation to what the traditional ones used to look like. So just for a bit more context, Hiapo is, I mean, if people are more familiar with the tapa, yeah, the which word is tapa. the Samoan. It's just the word for the cloth. Right. Yeah, so it's a bark cloth. So it's made from, well, in New it was traditionally made from the Atta plant, but in most of the islands they use aute or the mulberry paper, and so it's just the inner bark of the tree, and then it's beaten out. And I came late to the game, and so I never really took the importance of hiapo or the work that John Pule, he uses hiapo in his work, but I never really caught on to the references or really explored the meanings of hiapo, where it came from, until one day I was kind of looking through his book, that was written by John Pullet and Nicholas Thomas, New and Barkclough. And then I thought about the connection with my grandparents and they're getting old and when they pass away, how can I honour them? And in that, I thought, well, what do our people do? And then I learnt that our people get wrapped up in hiapo cloth when they pass away. And when I started asking questions to my nana about had she seen hiapo, what did it look like? 
she only had little bits of memory so then it became a challenge for me to tackle this on because from that moment I kind of wanted my grandparents to be wrapped in cloth when they pass away I want my nephews and nieces to have hiapo as gifts and I want to be able to put it back into our community and so as soon as I became interested I became fixated on knowing everything that I could about hiapo researching reading and most of my knowledge and most of the help that I got from wasn't really from books but it was from the memories that people had of it and also from old botanists who had gone through the Pacific during the colonial period who had documented the plants and their uses and so even though they aren't Nguyen or particularly from the Pacific their research and everything they documented was very very important to my process so I do like to acknowledge the work that the botanists did and all the drawings have contributed greatly to the knowledge that I have now. Why do you think that there is a growing interest in heritage-based practice at the moment? I think heritage art forms are the backbone of all contemporary art practices because... All contemporary art practices? No, sorry, Pacific. (laughs) Pacific, Indigenous. Mostly because I believe that to move forward we always look back and we always reference our whakapapa and that's just something that we do. If that's where your work is taking you and for many people who feel displaced or dislocated or who are searching into their identity, looking back to traditional heritage art forms is a nice start. And if they don't have any connection in their direct family, then there's always someone that you can kind of find working in certain art forms, whether it's from your island or from your hapu. I feel like there's always someone who's willing to help you in your steps to being more connected. But I think heritage artists definitely have created a place for those who don't have any access to their traditional knowledge to go back like a library of wealth almost. So you think people are learning about their culture through craft, through art and the making? Yeah, or even just the looking, the spending time, the researching, seeing how it's actually, like seeing how mats are used and seeing how a katu, like headbands from the Cook Islands are used and even having a kite, like a flax bag, even carrying one of those and using that, I think is a gesture and a way to look back and for heritage art forms to be an important aspect of who we are now. Do you think that looking into these traditional items is a way of, well, a small form of decolonization or Mm. resisting? I can see how it could be seen like that. But for me, I was raised knowing dancers, going to marae, dancing at 21st, having money stuck on me, being oiled up. Mm. And so for me, it's never been a question of decolonizing myself or empowering myself because it's just always been a part of my life and so with learning this heritage art form for me was basically more of a gesture of how I can actually use my skills as an artist and knowing the art world and knowing my people to give back and so my journey for my practice as a heritage artist is always just to see how much I can do and if I can actually make good work because a lot of heritage artists have people they learn from and because I'm the only hiapo maker from Niue. I don't have anyone that, like, formally with lots of technique and stuff, I don't have that. And so I do have the relationship, though, of people from multiple islands who have contributed, even just through conversation, for me to get to where I am. Do you think that if someone doesn't have the confidence to 
pursue it on their own. The best way for them to start is talking to people mm. around them. Or I'm always wondering how you find these people. Like, where do you find them? Where do you even start? Mm. Well, before even like finding them, I truly believe that knowledge is a privilege. It's not a right just because you're born into the right island to learn hiapo, to learn ngatu, masi, other forms of tapa. I don't believe that that knowledge is accessible to everyone. And I truly think that there's a time and a place for certain makers and for certain things to be reborn and revived. And so even if you are wanting to learn a particular heritage art form, I think it's an important thing for you as a person to ask yourself why first. Why do I want to learn this? How am I going to use it for my community? And always think outwards instead of how can I include this in my current practice to make it it benefit me yeah how does it benefit me does it make my practice more unique because i know that no artists are using dyed how to kick it to do this or whatever i think it's important before even going to research is why and if you're going to do work for a community are you even in the community and if you're not maybe make steps towards attending opening ceremonies events and start from the kitchen or start putting out chairs instead of starting straight to the top to ask the person with all the knowledge so and for me if it takes you a year or two do it and until you get the head nod from the aunties and the nannies and until someone trusts you enough to pass down that knowledge I think you should have the respect or the mana enough to know that if they say no then walk away happily knowing that maybe it's better for someone else what's up for you next Currently, the residency in Banff, I'll be focusing on making... Banff is... um, um, Banff, Alberta, Canada, the Banff Art Centre. As I'm part of the BC Collective, we've been asked to do work, and so Hiapo is part of that work, and it will be in a kind of tablecloth form for a setting of a dinner. And so I'll be creating, uh, I guess, table runners, but with all traditional materials as part of the wider work. So my partner Daniel Twist will be making Lakota Sioux pottery as all the dinnerware. And we'll be doing Tivaivai, so some Nui embroidery on all the napkins. And actually creating and catering a set of dinnerware that would fit an indigenous meal. So we'll have vessels for raw fish little pinch things for salt and because I know my family loves salt on their food and even bowls that kind of curve so that when you're eating like coconut buns or things with the juice that everyone loves that you can sop up the juice with fry bread and so kind of working towards that work which will show art space next year in March and then we'll be moving to the Vancouver Art Gallery in Canada. Is there anywhere online that we can keep up with what you're doing? Um, I do have work up on my website at coraallen.co.nz. Just more documentation and people can contact me if they want pieces of hiapo made, but I only specifically make for um, New Anne families. And I don't make to be on display because the cloth that I make, I want it to be used. I want it to be used for hair cutting ceremonies or for babies when they're first born to be wrapped up in. And so... When people do contact me, it's usually face-to-face because I feel I can relate to people more. And also I can get a feel about what pieces or what designs and patterns could maybe fit the person. So if people are wanting to know more information about what I do or how to get in contact, just go to there, to the website. There's one thing that I do want to acknowledge is that I think I am the fourth revival since the late 1800s when Hiapo was first made. 
And so there have been other attempts and other families. And I just want to acknowledge that without them and making steps, I wouldn't be this far in the process. And some of them didn't get to the place where they were able to make cloth to put it in the community. But I know that it all adds to the history and the story of Hiapo, which is important. And whether it was just making the cloth or getting to a point where it's in an art gallery, I think is important that Hiapo patterns are known by our community. And now I've seen a lot of people on Instagram having Hiapo tattoos as designs. And even that gesture helps to share the meanings of patterns. And I've been really grateful to have um, actually experienced support from the community too. And in saying that I didn't continue my practice and I didn't start making until I felt like the community had given me the head nod. And all I'd say to someone who is wanting to do the heritage arts is let the community tell you that it's for you and not choose it yourself.
on today's show has been curated by Music New South Wales to showcase women in electronic music. Warning, this track contains strong language. There you heard Empty by Tommy Genesis, which is definitely one of my self-care songs when I'm in a really angry mood. I think that kind of like accompanies going to boxing and speed walking everywhere. Um, and I think, yeah, Tanya, you were saying before, we were both feeling pretty burnt out at the moment. So we thought we'd revisit this idea of how to look after yourself. Yeah, it is something that I really, really struggle with, to be honest. I think working in the arts combined with a compulsive need to say yes to everything means that I'm still figuring out how to like do all the things that I want to do, but also stay on top of my health and basic needs. <laughs> yeah, I feel that compulsive need to say yes to everything so much. And I actually think that you are the first person I've met who says yes to more things 
else than I do. <laughs> um, and it's only, yeah, it's only really recently that I've started to realise how much it's okay to assess whether something is going to be uh, productive for you to go to or not even productive, maybe that's the wrong word, just something that you actually want to do, whereas like... Yeah, something that you want to do compared to something that you feel obliged to do or that you feel like you have to do. Um, So there's this thought catalogue article by Brianna West that came out a while ago that really resonated with where I'm at at the moment in terms of how to break patterns that are making you feel really shitty. Um, And I also think that it's a really... It's a tough one because the connotations of the article are kind of getting your shit together, which doesn't necessarily work for everyone either. Like, I think that it's... It's this um, really, uh, yeah, I, it's a delicate balance between being kind to yourself and identifying when maybe it's time to stop uh, being sorry and start being better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I feel that. I guess I guess the article to me is more about the idea that self-care shouldn't be an excuse to just do what feels good in the moment or like the treat yourself mentality, um, this bubble bath, like band-aid solution to bigger problems. Yeah, I think maybe that's like one of the biggest um, takeaways for me from it is like the difference between consumer self-care and actually looking after yourself in a way that's sustainable and realistic, like identifying when you're just doing the same things over and over again. So there's this part of it that reads, um, if you find yourself having to regularly indulge in consumer self-care, it's because you're disconnected from actual self-care, which has very little to do with treating yourself in quotation marks and a lot to do with parenting yourself and making choices for your long-term wellness, which... I feel like I'm totally susceptible to this. Like this, for me, it comes from this counterbalance between being completely self-destructive, like like the alternate alternative kind of um, solution to that for me is like, oh, I put on a face mask and everything's great and yeah. I didn't write myself off and now it's all fixed and like neither of those things are necessarily um, very uh, identifying anything in depth really for sure, <laughs> like for it's sure. kind of like a distraction technique in both senses a hundred percent I just yeah I feel like I want to quote the article a little bit because I feel like yeah it's it's good to read um it says self-care is often a very unbeautiful thing it's making a spreadsheet of your debt and enforcing a morning routine and cooking yourself healthy meals and no longer just running from your problems and calling the distraction a solution um it's often doing the ugliest thing that you have to do like sweat through a workout or tell a toxic friend you don't want to see them anymore or getting a second job so you have a savings account or figuring out a way to accept yourself so that you're not constantly exhausted from trying to be everything all the time yeah. Uh, <laughs> honestly, reading this article definitely made me a little bit emotional. But there's a particular part that resonated with me and maybe was the point um, at which I teared up <laughs> because it was a little bit too real. So it says, self-care is no longer using your hectic and unreasonable life as justification for self-sabotage in the form of liquor and procrastination. <laughs> I was like, whoa. Yeah. Yeah. But it's true. And I think um, she also makes a really interesting point um, when she says a world in which self-care has to be such a trendy topic is a world that is sick. Self-care should not be something we resort to because we are so absolutely exhausted that we need some reprieve from our own relentless internal pressure. Yeah. I also I also want to kind of touch on the fact that the whole concept of self-care, irrespective of whether it's like bubble baths or, you know... Um, self-sabotage or whatever is also like a very privileged concept too and I think like for me um thinking about it in terms of the fact that maybe uh what society deems destructive behavior is totally reasonable for some people's 
like what some people are going through. I don't know. I feel like the whole concept of it is such a privileged thing to talk about anyway. Well, it absolutely is. There's definitely a, it's a very like middle and above class thing yeah. to, to like have time to even think yeah. about self-care and like, like everyone is practicing it in some way, I feel like, but, but the intellectualization of it is, um, interesting I think (laughs) yeah but at the same time like it is such an important thing to talk about and I think it's positive that it has entered the zeitgeist in this way in in some ways like there's definitely negative aspects to um what self-care has come to mean in popular culture as in like this kind of bubble bath face mask totally totally but but it's also, I feel like it leads to conversations with friends about, like, just generally looking after yourself and, like, yeah, really positive things. Yeah, which I think, um, you know, talking about it conceptually and talking about it on a personal level for me is just something that I have personally had to relearn over and over and over again and that I'm still learning, you know, like, and still going through these really um, kind of relentless patterns of <laughs> trying to, like, figure out what the best or the best way to go about it is. And I guess the best way to go about it also changes over time. Mm, like, it's, yeah. it's never stagnant and you kind of need different things at different points in your life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we'd love to hear your thoughts, 0409945945, um, about self-care. Uh, Leah Jing McIntosh is the editor for Liminal Magazine, an online space that explores, interrogates and celebrates the Asian-Australian experience. They were a guest on Agenda uh, a couple of months ago now, and I spoke to Leah earlier this week about their approach to self-care. I think it's really important to be cognizant of how, as a person of colour, we take care of ourselves in a world not made for us. And I've never been very good at self-care, but lately I've hit on something that I really do love. And it's going on an hour-long walk each day with my housemate Jack and his chihuahua, whose name is Spooky Sue. And we walk along this kind of very leafy aqueduct near our house um, and kind of loop under this six-lane freeway. But it's so quiet and honestly, weirdly, so beautiful in, a, in like an apocalyptic way. The huge slabs of concrete and dappled light and gum trees. And we talk about what's happened that day and what we're working on. And sometimes we just walk. The endorphins in the sun and just having an honest-to-God whinge does both of us, like, a lot of good. Aside from that, I think it's mostly just hanging out with pals and reading good books and listening to good things like this very show. I think Audrey Lord says it best when she says, Caring for myself is not self-indulgence, it is self-preservation, and that is an act of political warfare. Oh, so good. Thanks, Leah. Um, if you have some tips on... Or just some thoughts on this kind of uh, idea of how to care for yourself. Text us 0409 945 945. Um, I think, yeah, I think one of the best responses we've heard on Agenda on the topic of, or not the best, but just like a very thoughtful response on how to approach self-care was from Amina Tuso, who is one of the co-hosts of um, Call Your Girlfriend, who spoke about it uh, this year. I do think about this a lot because I'm somebody who is on a lot. My uh, my parents were diplomats, so I was like raised by schmoozers, even though I was actually <laughs> a very shy kid. I used to eat my lunch in the library. And even now, um, after this interview, I'm going to need two hours in my closet <laughs> just by myself. Um, and so all of this is a performance. But I think that the two things are at work here for me. I think that um, 
ordinary people should not feel the responsibility of the weight of the world. Mm -hmm. You know, like it is, I, I get where that sense of empathy comes from and I feel it a lot, especially as, um, as an African woman. And, you know, I'm very aware of where I come from and I'm aware of like how far I've gone and how much I want the world to change. But the truth is that if the world goes to shit tomorrow, um, it's not your fault. You're not the person who did that. And I think that, especially for women, that is really hard to hear, right? It's like, you care, you want to do everything. But the truth is that, like, you, it is not in your power to make change. So that's the bad news, <laughs> is, like, to really know that. But I also think that um, we, as, in the United States, at least, uh, I don't know if you've heard, we had a terrible election last year. <laughs> like, I don't know you if the news fast. has made it over here yet. Um, and we are devastated. Like, we are truly... True, you know, like I, we are still going through the cycles of grief, and it, it's like very shocking how how quickly we went from like we don't want this man in the White House to oh my God, now he's here. You know, like it just it just happened. He's here now. I like every time I see him on TV, I have a full body chills because I can't believe it actually happened. But here's the thing: is that um, any fight that you want, like first of all, our lives will always be a struggle because we're women. Like some people don't want to hear that, and I'm sorry, but if you if you are in it to to bend the moral arc of justice, it's not gonna be fun and Instagram and hashtags every day. Like some days will be hard. And the truth is that like if you want to do that kind of work, you have to think about very long term. And you have to think about the long term that you're not even gonna be alive here for, right? It's there is a possibility that nothing will change in our lifetimes. That's not actually true because things do change every day. You know, like just think about um, yeah, I, I always go back to my mom and I was like, what what kind of rights and opportunities does my mom have when she was my age? And the truth is that in one generation, in all around the world, even in the Western world, things have changed for women. So things are changing, but it, what is it that you want? Do you want change for yourself or do you want change for the world? And if you want change for yourself, then, you know, like, get to the gym, work out, mm -hmm. get a better job, do, you know, like, get a blowout, do the things that you need to do for yourself. <laughs> If you want change for the world, you really need to submit to the fact that you might not be here to see it. So in terms of burnout, um, one thing that I see a lot with people, and I suffer from this too, is just like care. It's like you can care about everything, but you can't do something about everything. That's just there's too much content and there's too much information <laughs> and it comes at us too fast. So our friend Beth Pickens wrote this great book called uh, Art Will Save Your Life and I recommend it to everybody to read. But one of the strategies that she gives is that like you, you should pick two causes. One that is like near and dear to you. So like if you, you know, if you're queer, pick a queer thing. If you are blue, pick a blue thing. If you are, if you're a woman, pick a woman thing. And then pick one thing that does not affect you. That is like far, it, it, it has nothing to do with you, but it's something that you want to help on. And that's where you dig deep. And... And you have to, and surround yourself with people that you trust are doing the other work, right? Mm. Um, but I also think that self-care and mental health are really, 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 really important. And for a lot of creative people, we throw ourselves in our work and, um, you know, we batter our bodies and worse, we batter our minds. And uh, you have to take care of your body and your mind. Like we're not, none of this is worth it if you're not going to be a healthy person to enjoy your work or to show your work or to present your work or to defend the people that you want to defend. I was diagnosed with cancer late last year and uh, with endometrial cancer. And my entire life, my identity was really wrapped into work. I thought that I was, my worth was measured by how productive I was. 
And I was one of those people that always said that I would never, you know, it's like, ugh, if I, like, who sits at home and who vacations? Like, who are these people? <laughs> Long story short, when you get cancer, you, like, just kind of know where to go. I had to, I had to quit work. I had to turn down everything. And I was really confronted with my own, like, what is my identity if my identity is not my work? Let me tell you, relaxing is great. <laughs> it is, it's terrifying in the sense that, yeah, you know, like, like money is obviously a problem and you need to figure it out. And we live in a country that has very terrible health care. So being sick will literally bankrupt you and you will never recover in your life. Like that's like, I want to acknowledge that that's real. But the thing that, um, you know, and I was privileged enough to have good health care and to have like good friends who took care of me. But I was really struck by this very um, Western ideal we have about work and productivity. Like, you're not your productivity. That's not who you are. So sometimes it's okay not to be showing things or to mm. be doing things. And also you need, um, you need a really strong backbone and you need a really strong interior life to protect yourself. And, you know, and the thing about creatives is that we give and give and give and give. How can you give if your cup is empty? And so taking that time for yourself and not feeling guilty about it and not feeling selfish about it. I I hear the word selfish so much from women whenever mm. they, you know, they're like not taking, they're not doing like the mom thing they're supposed to be doing or you're taking some time off or you're not, you're not helping on your weekend and you feel selfish, you know? And, and I would say to you, it's like, do you like, do you think that men feel selfish when they're doing their men activities? You know, I'm, just, I'm like, women are friends, but men are activity buddies. It always just shocks me. I'm like, wow, you guys always find something to do. Um, I just want to sit on the couch and do nothing. But I think that really thinking about that is like, like what is your long term? And how do you protect for yourself? You know, I think that having a love of self is something that a lot of us struggle with. And we're so good about taking care of our friends and our families and our kids. Yeah. Imagine if you did 10% of that for yourself where you were gentle with yourself, you gave yourself the time, and you said, I am my own friend, like I am my own love. And you did that same thing. I, you would be a little bit happier. <laughs> Welcome to my
heard Pantone Home by Sydney artist Wallace and you're tuned in to Agenda on FBI Radio. We've been chatting about all things self-care this morning um, and we are coming up to the end of the show but before we go I actually <laughs> it's kind of funny that we've just talked about all of these like when to stop and when to acknowledge that you're burnt out because Tanya you are <laughs> curating <laughs> um, a one night exhibition next week featuring some of our favourite Asian Australian artists yes, um, <laughs> yes I just am. another thing that you're doing um, can you can you can I interview you about it? Um, you sure can, Katie. <laughs> Great to be here. <laughs> thanks, thanks for coming on the show. <laughs> um, yeah, the exhibition is called Ritual Resistance. Um, so it is presented by Peril Magazine, which is an Asian Australian arts and culture online magazine. Um, it's been around for ages, and they've never actually done a Sydney event before. Peril um, runs a whole lot of events, but generally they're always in Melbourne. Um, so I'm the music editor at Peril and I've teamed up with the visual arts editor who's also based in Sydney, Tanushri Saha. Um, so she's curated the visual arts um, lineup, which will be at Down Under Space on Wednesday. And then there's going to be an after party, uh, which I have curated. Um, so it's presented by You Don't Sound Asian. Um, which is Peril's, like, music SoundCloud that I curate. Yeah, which you do, like, playlists for yeah. quite regularly. Yeah, uh, semi-regularly, when, yeah. I, when I have the time. <laughs> um, and people are DJing yes. and performing. Yes, so we've got Flower Boy, uh, who is really, really great. Uh, Flower Boy's going to do a DJ set. We have got Murph, who um, has recently been announced as one of the uh, artists represented by Nectar. Um, we had Andy and Tia from Nectar on the show a couple of weeks ago now. Um, Nectar doing really, really cool things in electronic music, and I'm super excited to have Murph as the closer of the night. Um, we have also got... FBI Radio's own Dubby and Diola uh, jumping yes. on for a set. So good. Yes, it's going to be great. I'm super excited. And the art lineup is really good as well. Yeah, who's 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 on the art lineup, Tanya? <laughs> um, there are a lot of artists on the art lineup. Um, some include Danielle Hromek, uh, Nikki Lamb, Athena Thebus, and so many more. Um, I'm really excited. I don't actually know a lot about the artworks that are going to be shown um, yet because that is not my domain, um, <laughs> but I'm super excited. It sounds like it's going to be fun. I think there's going to be a lot of like multimedia, a lot of screen art, um, which is really fun. And Down Under Space is always a really a nice place for a little one-night exhibition, I feel. So on Wednesday night... 
yeah head along yes please do (laughs) Wednesday uh, it is free before 8pm and $5 after 8pm and it's going to be fun we'll have a boogie it will it will be very fun and that is the night before Liveworks Festival opens which is it's a it's a big week for all Um, should we leave you with this track by Ariana Grande I think it's very apt I feel like it's very fitting for the end of this show This is definitely one of my um, also power walking (laughs) songs. (laughs) This is No Tears Left to Cry.